Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which was a short story by James Thurber published in 1939, as well as the 2013 film adaptation, which starred Ben Stiller. But first, we are going to tell you about all the ways you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect to us via our Facebook page and our Twitter, both searchable by typing Pages and Popcorn Podcasts into your search bar. We now have polls about our episodes on Facebook and Twitter land, so check them out and make your opinions known. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to thank all our Patreons for their continued support and remind you all that our Patreon page is www.patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. And you are welcome to support us and this podcast for as little as $1 a month. That tiny little bit of support really helps us out. And for your $1 a month, you will have early access to all the podcasts the second they are ready. So head over to our Patreon page and sign up. Again, it's patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. And we want to really encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform that you listen to us on, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. And now, on with the show. You didn't know about this at all until I put it into our... Yeah, the title didn't resonate, and then... Actually, when I read the short story, I went, oh, yeah, I've read this story. I read this in school. I didn't remember his name, but I remember the short story. And then when I was looking for the movie and I saw 
the still of Ben Stiller, I was like, oh, I think I saw the preview for that at some point and was like, oh, yeah, that looks worth watching. But I didn't actually see it in the theater or at all. Um, so it was kind of vaguely in my consciousness. And so then I rented it on Amazon Prime and watched it. Cool. Yeah, that's where I remember first meeting this short story was in school. It was in grade school. And it's one of those that I remember. There was just something about it that caught my attention. So, yeah. Okay. So, it's a very short story. It's available on uh, the New Yorker website. Uh, it was written by James Thurber in, let's see, March 18th, 1939 is when it was published. It's still available. And it's so short, I could probably read you the book instead of doing a summary, but I'm still going to do a summary. All right, so we start with a daring Navy pilot flying his seaplane boat, flying boat through a storm. He is commanding and confident, and he shepherds his crew through the ice and wind, very dramatic and full of excitement. But then he's going too fast. What? Oh, daydream, and Walter Mitty is driving his wife through Waterbury, Connecticut. He's going 40 miles an hour, which is just too fast. In real life, Walter Mitty is a henpecked, mild-mannered man out for a weekly shopping trip. The story moves in and out of Walter Mitty's fantasies, each linked by something going on around him. After he drops off his wife at the beauty parlor, he rebelliously takes off his gloves, as his wife told him to wear, then resentfully puts those gloves back on and hurries along when a police officer barks at him. The most Mitty can do to reassert his manhood is rev the car a bit and kick some snow slush, which reminds him he needs overshoes, as his wife told him. As he passes a hospital, he becomes a world-renowned surgeon, putting on the surgical gloves. Mitty heroically saves a millionaire banker with the use of a fountain pen and a lot of made-up technical argle-bargle because he's brilliant and in charge. Oh no, a parking attendant shouts he's in the wrong lane. Back to the real world. Everyone is more confident and capable than him, even the parking lot attendant. He hates these shopping trips because he never gets anything right and can't remember what he was supposed to get. And as he shouts out about a trial, there's a phrase, perhaps this will refresh your memory. And on his mind waters again. This time he's a deadly assassin in a courtroom. He's in control. Deadly. Has beautiful women swoon into his arms randomly. Puppy biscuits. That's what he was trying to remember to buy. Puppy biscuits. Shopping done, he waits for his wife in the lobby, picks up a newspaper with an article about Germany and World War II, and now he's an ace pilot, a man who can pilot two manned planes single-handedly because he's awesome sauce and off on a secret suicide mission. The bravery. His wife smacks him on the shoulder. I've been looking for you. And she tells him off. He has an exchange, tells her he was just thinking. It's a little reminiscent of that Twilight episode of the man who only wanted to read and nobody would let him. Just thinking. He's waiting outside at the drugstore for her, smoking a cigarette in the rain, facing the firing squad. Stoic, proud, and disdainful, he's inscrutable to the last. Yep, and that's the end of the short story. So all the stuff that was in the story, the only thing that's the same in the movie is that there's a character named Walter Mitty, and he has fantasies. That's it. So the movie starts in a gray sterile room. A buttoned-up Walter Mitty is looking over some finances when he takes a break to gaze at an online dating site. The woman he's interested in, Cheryl Melhoff, is witty into adventurous men, has a three-legged dog and a son, and Mitty needs to psych himself up into making first contact, but technology fails. Lots of product placement for eHarmony. And later on, there's Papa John's, and the product placement in this movie was fairly obvious. 
Mitty has to admit to the eHarmony support guy that he hasn't done anything mentionable in his profile because he's done nothing mentionable in his life. When he parkours off the Chicago L and into a birding building to save a three-legged dog, during which time he has made a prosthesis for the canine and gives it to a grateful Cheryl who happens to be standing by. Oh wait, no, he missed his train. Next day, his geeky sister tells him he's got some family dramas to deal with and Mitty finds out Life, the magazine he works for, will close down and go to a digital-only presence. Mitty works in the photo archives, a dull and repetitive job, but is dying out in the digital age. When he is bullied by a manager, all the great comebacks happen only in his mind. I have been there. I feel ya. He creeps a little bit on his love interest by staring at her oddly and having adventurous fantasies. During these frequent fantasies, he's lost to the world. In uh, the basement, he has a little conversation about Sean O'Connell, who is a photographer and works with Mitty, and sent Mitty his latest negatives in a wallet as a thank you. Uh, the two have a really interesting working relationship, but have never really met. Alas, negative number 25 is missing, and that is supposed to be on the last episode, the last issue of Life magazine. There's some development both in character and romance with Cheryl as she tries to help Mitty put together the mystery of the negatives, and later he's able to figure out O'Connell is in Greenland. There's some backstory with nerd crazy sister and Mitty's mom. Mitty, as a child skateboarded, dreamed of adventures, but had to give up his life goals when his father died, leaving his dreams to be only experienced as dreams. Even when Mitty breaks out the rare moment of cool, teaching Cheryl's son some skateboarding tricks, it goes unnoticed. But Mitty's not down yet. In a fit of carpe diem, Mitty goes to Iceland. Uh, I mean Greenland. Greenland is quaint if small and filled with eccentrics who drink beer out of glass boots. Mitty almost gets an eye cut out by a broken bottle in a bar fight, but instead makes friends with the violent helicopter pilot who is singing karaoke. Helicopter pilot offers to fly Mitty to the boat in O'Connell's picture. Cue Kristen Wiig singing Space Oddity, the dream inspiring Mitty to race to the helicopter and leap in. And the whole time he's there, I can't believe he's not putting on a seatbelt. It drove me nuts. He has to dive into the ocean to get to the boat and has a moment with a shark, loses the package the helicopter pilot was supposed to deliver. Turns out O'Connell left a half day earlier, but they can't contact him because the radio parts are in the ocean. Mitty makes friends with the crew and follows clues to find O'Connell, who will be in Iceland. In Iceland, he has to outrace Chileans for the one bicycle. Uh, just a note, the Chileans were going to a strip club, Iceland outlawed strip clubs in 2010. Mitty's fantasies cause him to crash, so he trades for a skateboard using his stretch Armstrong that his sister gave him. Ripping his tie apart to make some hand guards, Mitty goes, does the ultimate in cool skateboarding down a mountain road. The volcano erupts. Mitty just sees O'Connell on a biplane to take amazing photos as a random, very nice Icelander drives Mitty back to the town to rescue him. At Papa John's, Mitty's accounts are getting low, so he calls Cheryl to get some info. She asks, they have Papa John's there? In truth, Iceland didn't have at the time of the film. Power product placement. Back home, Mitty is still dogged by evil manager bullies, is fired, and chickens out when he goes to Cheryl's house. The fantasies that were gradually receding are coming back, going from inspirational back to escapism. At his mom's house, Mitty finds out O'Connell came to visit, but missed O'Connell, and now the photographer is in Afghanistan, so Mitty is on the road. He crosses the Himalayas with rented guys, befriends warlords, and traverses the wilds. 
The mundane returns with the eHarmony tech on the phone while Mitty is in a random mountain. He finds O'Connell waiting patiently to photograph a snow leopard. Turns out the missing photo was in the wallet that O'Connell gave him at the beginning of the film. Romantic comedy misunderstanding. Profound lesson about living in the moment and the two descend the mountain to play football. Back in the States, Mitty is stopped by security and needs the eHarmony support tech to vouch that Mitty is an American. There's a bit of a bromance. Mitty gets the final negative, goes back to Life magazine, confronts the soulless corporate bully. Now Mitty has an incredible resume, gets a date with the girl, and is on the front of Life magazine's last issue. It is fascinating to me how two people can watch the same movie and take notes and do a recap. And your recap is so different than my recap would have been. Really? Yes. Okay, so what do you highlight as the plot? Well, I mean, basic plot points, but you you didn't say anything about the fact that he had thrown the wallet away or like what the inscription in the wallet was. You uh, The fact that when he went to the house, the way you phrased it about not doing anything at the house, but... Like that was an actual plot point. There was a that was the romantic misunderstanding. The stuff with Cheryl, I would have talked differently about. And yeah, like like I just I think it's interesting. Like what we would have pulled out. Like my notes are are very very different. But I think that that will will come through in our discussion. It sounds like well, we... that's kind of the point of having two people discuss this for sure. Because we do have two very different views of the world. Yes. So. This is one of my first questions for you is Cheryl. So it's kind of a romantic comedy, but not really. It's much more about Mitty. And it galls me to see a woman used as a trophy. But how would you have proper romantic development when you have such little face time? Cheryl was a prop. All the women in this movie were a prop, which is disappointing, except that the story that it's based on the only woman in that story is not a prop. She's a horrible shrew who is awful. Like she's not, mm-hmm. she's, she's awful. Right. And in this, but, but I think before we can really talk about like the difference in the females or the women, we have to kind of talk about the whole point. They're different points. So yeah. the short story was written as part of like this humorist thing where we're going to laugh at the little man, um, the, the, the person, the guy who's small and unassuming and doesn't isn't very capable. And there was this whole big thing about making fun of those men. So it's it's satirical and it's 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 funny. We're we're supposed to feel bad for Mitty in this short story, but we're also supposed to kind of mock him. He's there for our amusement. And the trope of the the overbearing, domineering wife was was common in mm-hmm. the writings of this author. Okay. The movie decided to not make that the point. Um, we have our everyman, and he is rather small and unassuming. But not only does he have a history of being more interesting and engaging, he has a tragic backstory, which, again, you didn't mention in your recap, which I found I really, did. really important. But he, he had been this adventurous spirit with this mohawk and the skateboarding, and his father was very supportive, and then his dad died, and he had to start working and take care of his sister, who's this out-of-work actress, and his mother. So he became this very responsible, buttoned-up person, and he kind of simmered down and punched down all of his excitement yeah, I didn't mention that all of his excitement aspects and then his story really wasn't about becoming somebody different but it was about reconnecting with himself and finding himself and and it's a little on the nose where you take this wild around the world journey to find the thing that you 
technically already had. Not only was the negative in the wallet that he had, but his adventurous spirit was always in him all along. So, okay. So the movie did a, was telling a very different story, just starting kind of from the same part. So it's almost not fair to compare the women in the short story to the women over here. But if we look at them separately, I would say it is disappointing that... Yeah, I wasn't even trying to compare the two because there's nothing that's similar. You know, the only thing that's really similar is Walter Mitty having some fantasies. That's it. Right. So the women in the movie are basically just props. But everyone besides Mitty is a prop. His boss is a prop. The eHarmony guy is a prop. Uh, the photographer is a prop. Right, but we were talking about the women. Okay, but I don't know. It's it's like the women are props. Yeah, but everybody's a prop. Okay, well, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I thought you were wanting me to... If you if you still had go ahead, no. The, well, that you was asked my... a question. I'm trying to answer it, and you're stomping all over my answer before I even finish saying my I'm answer. Sorry. Okay. Go ahead. Please. Well, ask your question again because maybe I misunderstood your question. Okay. So my thing about Kristen Wiig is whenever you have this romantic comedy, because they take out that he's in a relationship, they make it into sort of there's going to be a romance, and she's treated as a trophy, which instantly makes me dislike this film a little bit. See, I didn't see her as a trophy. I saw her as a prop and 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 very unrealistic in a lot of ways. Um, one glaring example for me is when they're in the park and they're having this conversation and then she's like, I gotta go. My kid is literally skateboarding into the street. But then she stops to have this heart-to-heart with him to give him some moments of inspiration. And I'm like... No, if you're a mom and your kid is literally in the street with a skateboard or even getting close, you're not going to turn your back on him and have this heart to heart. It's very much about Mitty, for Mitty, blah, blah, blah. Okay, those are the failings. However, it redeems itself a little bit by not making it be all about just her. Um, And it takes a long time to get there. I will say like one of his fantasies is that he sees her face, the birds make her face in the sky, like the sign from God or something. And that's ridiculous. But also, like, she's his motivating force. She's the, the the plot point that pushes him. She sings a song. He jumps on the helicopter, all of this stuff. But then ultimately, he gives up on her. He leaves the skateboard for her son, and he leaves. And then he continues his journey kind of without the need of her. So I feel like it redeems itself for that because he's not searching her out and still trying to get the girl. That's no longer his motivation. So I see that as kind of an evolution. Like when you're young, maybe the teenager aspect, it is all about maybe the hormonal lust, but you get older and there's other things that motivate you and propel you on your epic journey. So I like that. I liked at the end that they they were kind of together. They were like holding hands. So, okay, and we had that romantic thing of, oh, my ex-husband's not really here. He was just there, but we're not back together. <laughs> okay, fine, whatever. At least it didn't end on a big epic kiss and, you know, stuff like that. And so, I, but I have, I have other feelings about the ending in itself. I actually really enjoyed this movie um, until probably the last couple of minutes. Um, but... That's that's how I feel. I feel like they she was just there as a prop, not not as a trophy, so to speak. So that's good springboard onto something else about this film because I like this film more than I expected to. And looking on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics score gave it fifty one. Like the critics 
just hated yeah, people, on this film. People really didn't like this film. And no. I read a bunch of reviews and they were like, oh, it's insipid. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. And, oh, it's, it could have been funny, but it wasn't. And, and Ben Stiller, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, this is like one of the only Ben Stiller movies I've actually enjoyed. So maybe, maybe this is a Ben Stiller movie for people who don't like Ben Stiller. I thought it was great. I have to tell you. Like, I read the short story and I was like, yeah, okay, I remember this. And... God, it was kind of a, it's a little depressing. So let's see what the movie's like. And I watched the movie and I was like, God damn, this movie's beautiful. This movie is beautiful. The cinematography is really amazing. And there's, there's stuff with like the signages and like the colors and like he's all this gray and then there's like sparks of colors and the colors take a transformational journey and the signs take a transformational journey. Yeah, and so. oh my God. And, and, and then the, the locations are gorgeous. I just, Okay, and then you have the story, which is so much more uplifting and optimistic than the short story, which I like. I like happy things. Um, so not about the cinematography is if you look at the film in its beginning, it's very linear. Everything's boxed. Everything's lines. And like you said, it's grays and blues. It's not necessarily depressing. It's just very neutral and blank. So when the eHarmony guy said, you know, when I first met you, you were just a blank page. In a way, Mitty isn't. That's just how he's perceived, which is in keeping with the short story. That is how he's perceived, but there's the secret life. Right. Well, and also, not only is there a secret life, but it's foreshadowed because, yes, he gets he, he, he goes to work, right? That's the very first, one of the first things that happens. And he's walking into the office and the building is all black and white. And everybody is wearing black. Everybody is wearing black, except for Mitty. He's actually wearing a lighter colored jacket. Like, so yes, he looks just like all the other automatons and it's all very stark and basic and boring, but already at that point, he's a little bit different. And so like, and at first I was like, okay, did they dress him like this so we could tell him apart and all the, the people? Obviously, no, they make choices, right? So he's he's already standing out a little bit. And I just thought that was really interesting. And it, it heralds up. At the end, the very last shot, Mitty's wearing all black. But now his face has more color in it because he's gotten sunburned and he's been windblown and he's done all these things. And so his, and he's got this little cute little hipster necklace going on. Like he's moved on. He's trans, like it's not about the color anymore. And his confidence is there. But I thought that was, I mean, the use of color in yeah. this movie so is So it starts off very great. And then when he goes to Iceland, he's wearing red. He takes the red car. You oh, know, it's which the is, red pill. It's the red pill. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, to explain, he goes to Iceland and he's looking for a car and the, he says, do you have any cars? And the guy goes, yep, we've got two, a red one and a blue one. And then Mindy says, I'll take the red one, which as we know from the Matrix and et cetera, you take the red pill, you continue the journey. Like yeah. you're choosing passion and life and different as well as opposed to the mundane the blue Mitty's tie was blue his like their office was like shot in these blue tones so yeah and, and it gets Iceland to, is gorgeous and it gets more vibrant as he goes on yeah the color was amazing I so just as a back note about the film I, I made that little comment Iceland oh I mean Greenland so he's supposed to be in Greenland and there's a little one thing I did really like about the film is that it was much tighter writing than I expected. So they'll make a comment. It's not a throwaway comment. Early on, somebody said, oh, there's only eight people in Greenland. He only sees eight people the entire time he's in Greenland, which was technically shot in Iceland. But right, which, you know, um, I will say there are more than eight people in Greenland and, and that kind of painting with such a broad brush and assuming things about other countries 
even and making them kind of a butt of a joke isn't great. I will also point out that when he one of his early fantasies is that he's a mountain guy and he shows up to talk to Cheryl and he's just climbed this mountain and he's all covered in snow and whatever. And for some reason now he has this accent and it it's super racist. Um, of course, that fantasy gives us the poetry falcon which I freaking love. I want a poetry falcon. Like who wouldn't want a poetry falcon? But but there are a few problematic racist things that happen. And yes, it's it the the joke about there only being eight people in Iceland is is a joke, but I just want to be culturally aware that there's obviously more than eight people in Noted. I still thought it was funny that they make a throwaway joke and then the, there's a, a certain amount of subtlety in the film. So Unless you're actually counting the people, would you notice that he only sees eight people there? If you notice, like, all of his fantasies, they're foreshadowing something that he does. He jumps off the train, and then he jumps off the helicopter. There's He's on the Conan O'Brien show, and then he's on the Lifetime cover. Each of his fantasies actually foreshadows an actual thing he does. Most of them, I would say. It kind of falls apart a little bit when he makes the one of his fantasies is a statue. Uh, yeah, one of his fantasies is her face in birds. So, okay. <laughs> but um but a lot of them do. They definitely they, they foreshadow and they give us hints about himself. So, what I I wrote down um because his fantasies are so important and I thought it really breaks up the whole the whole thing. So, in the in the book, in the short story, we have five fantasies, which is a lot considering how short the story is. So we have the first one is the commander in the hydroplane, uh, man in charge, and who's brave. Then we have the famous doctor who also fixes this piece of medical equipment with a fountain pen. So again, we have man in charge, and we have brains over bronze. Then we have he's an expert marksman, and he's cool under pressure. Again, man in charge. Cool under pressure, very, these very typical, very highly competent. Then he is a pilot, he's brave, he can hold his liquor, it's very important, he's a soldier. Okay, these like, like quintessential manly, manly, manly things. Um, and then the last one is that he's a prisoner, but he's got dignity, he's gonna die with dignity, he's gonna face the firing squad, he's, you know, raw, okay, awesome. So the fantasies in the movies, we had a lot more, um, but actually not, a zillion more, which I thought was interesting. So like there are more because it's a movie, it's longer, but okay. So the first one we have is that he jumps off of a train thing. He dives into a burning building that's about to explode. It's not burning yet. He's, but he knows because the dog is barking, which put a pin in dog barking. Cause that happens a lot. So he dives and he saves the dog from the building and he fashions a prosthetic leg for the dog at the same time. So he is, you know, a man of action, a hero with brains. And then our next one is that he's the mountain climber man when with this is the one with the racist accent and with his poetry falcon. Um he's ruggedive, but he's sensitive. Okay? So already like in two ways we're undermining like that almost that toxic masculinity and we're saying that you can be masculine with other stuff which i like okay then his next fantasy is that he has made a statue which is just purely artistic expression it's it happens super fast um so that's it then we have this elevator fight where he challenges the the boss um like peter griffin finding the chicken mixed with spider-man part two and the matrix it that was like one of the few cringe moments i had was that whole fight scene to me, it felt like a video game, like, and it was very highly stylistic. They were basically skiing on asphalt and things are flying and the colors got very saturated, um, which is just pure testosterone, macho man on man action happening right here. 
Then his next one is a very romantic fantasy where she's talking to him in the park and then suddenly she's like, let's run away together. You're all I want. And and then it transitions into this Benjamin Button thing where they're, he's like, Aunt nestle, she goes, nestle up next to me and die as they're sitting on this porch. That was also kind of creepy. It was creepy and weird. But again, like this fantasy is about being important to somebody, being like the center of somebody else's universe and with this romantic overtone. Again, not... The, the the highly masculine macho masculine it's a, it's a little bit different okay like basically in this fantasy i'm going to die after living a long happy life with the woman that i love like i mean come on okay um then we had the next fantasy is when um Sean Penn's uh, Sean O'Malley O'Connell O'Connell thank you beckons to him with his fingers and um even though in my notes i wrote fingering fantasy that's not actually what what it is (laughs) anyways so o'connell's beckoning him with his finger and this is where we get into like this fantasy is all about being chosen and and this fantasy goes into the the, like it's almost the same one he's he's leaving life magazine he's running past the posters this is when we go from escapism to inspiration and as he's running past the posters, the last one is him as an astronaut, which again is the chosen, but now accomplished with a happy ending. Because that astronaut picture is after the fact. You write about a successful, you know. So it's, it's again, a happy ending is, is part of this fantasy. Our next fantasy is Cheryl singing to him in the middle of nowhere at this bar. And this, this to I me was... I love that scene. This to me was more of the escapism becoming inspiration because... Her song continues to play in his head as part of the fantasy, but in reality, he does really run out and jump into the helicopter. So at that point is when we really have the melding of the two. And to me, this is a this is a very clear moment because after that, like first of all, jumping into a helicopter is not a fantasy; it actually happens. That's a real moment that he can be proud of. And then what happens after that is he jumps out of the helicopter, he misses the boat, he gets the wrong side of the helicopter, which is hilarious. He lands in the water, and then he freaking fights a shark. Like, okay, rather silly, but in the realm of the movie, it actually happens. It's not a fantasy. And he comes out of it, he's like, touching the guy's face. He's like, did that really happen? Because sometimes he can't even tell. But at this point now, his real life is becoming more exciting. And it happens in that moment of that song that she does. So then the next real fantasy thing he has is the face, Cheryl's face and the birds. Again, I feel like that's like the sign from God, again, about being chosen on his epic quest. And then our last fantasy is a bad fantasy. It's about Conan interviewing him and kind of like talking about the scandal. This is when he's really feeling down because he went to see Cheryl and he thinks she's with her back, back with her ex-husband. And he doesn't want the fantasy. He asks the cab driver, can you turn it off? And the cab driver says no. And he's sad. At this point, the fantasies are not escapism anymore. They're representations of his mind, but it's sad. Well, he also just got fired. So he's had a couple of blows. Yeah. He, he missed the photographer. He got fired. And he missed the girl. And now his fantasies are not building him up as this escape. It's just reinforcing what he already thinks about himself. This is the kind of quote-unquote fantasy daydream that I think we all have more regularly than than the big epic things sometimes. It's just like that everybody notices us and everybody's looking at our bad things and everybody won't leave us alone about our sadness and whatever. And that's basically it. That's the last fantasy. And so if you if you chart the fantasies, like getting more and more extreme and then kind of quieting down and becoming more based in reality, but also sadder, and then that's it. That's the end of them. And is he going to have more daydreams? God, I hope so. But not maybe to the exclusion of other stuff, which... 
is is a, my next point, but I want to make sure that you have a chance to talk too. So I have oh, another point, a point. <laughs> about the fantasies, but did you want to say anything else about the fantasies? Um, just that I, I really love the, the space oddity scene. To me, that was one of those, those highlights of the film. If I was going to point to the film and say, this is the key moment that I, I really like, because I love David Bowie, and he was the center of the universe. And when he died, you could see the collapse of our world. That's the thing. Views expressed in Pages and Podcast Podcast are Jennifer's own. <laughs> the one's expressed by her anyway. Okay. So yes, it was it was a good song and All right, it was magic. It was. I no, I mean I love that scene. I I don't think I have quite the hero worship for David Bowie that you do, but I definitely agree with you that the, the Major Tom song, or Space Oddity as it's officially known, is uh is, is well placed there and mm-hmm. beautiful. Some of the fantasies are a little cringy to me. Benjamin Button one was just just weird. So it, it didn't flow as well. There are some jokes that fall flat. Uh, but overall, it, it was a, it was an interesting progression that is very, very, very different from the short story. Yes. Yeah. And so I wonder, and, and this kind of goes to how do you see the short story? Is it optimistic? Is it pessimistic? It's just, it's such a, a weird thing to take this short story and make this movie or it almost feels like you're taking Walter Mitty as he wanted to be and giving him almost the fan fiction ending you wish he had. <laughs> yeah, it's very much more optimistic. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I am curious about your next point. Okay, so again, this doesn't happen in the short story because the short story is so short and it's not the point of the short story. But one of the themes in the movie is about, you know, what you're looking for, you already had, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it did a really great job of doing this. He's on this epic journey. It turns out when he blacks out or zones out or daydreams out, he's actually missing very important things that are happening in the real world. And those things, if he hadn't missed, would have made his life better. So for, I mean, there's a couple obvious examples. When he's talking to Cheryl in the park, he zones out thinking about her expressing her undying love for him. And she's actually trying to make this connection with him that he misses out on because he's skipping ahead to the ending of the mm-hmm. story. Um, at one point, and this is, happens off screen, but his mother references it, she's telling him about Sean O'Connell and like where he is and going on and da 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 And he had zoned out, so he missed it. So part of his whole epic journey didn't even need to happen because if he had just been listening to his mother and not zoning out, then he would have known more information. You know, there was another one too that I wrote down. Uh, so I'm going to make a quick note while you look for that about the product placement because that is very frustrating to see at the same time i can defend a little bit of that in this film because it's not really promoting these things e-harmony he didn't get the connection through that and at the end he was like it's 500 dollars a month i can't afford it it's not really a promotion papa john's is very sad this is the thing that he became when he had to give up his dreams. So it's product placement, but it's also not promotional, if that makes sense. Product placement does not bother me in the slightest in any way, shape, or form. I understand that people got to make money. And also, our world is full of products. I'm literally holding a phone right now that is an Apple phone, and it has two Dutch Bros stickers on it. So if you made a movie about my life and you didn't put the Dutch Bros stickers on my phone because you were, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like... It's not, is it product placement because you put them on the phone in, in the version of my movie life? But yeah, but also it's, it's realistic. You know, we have product placement all over the place. Well, it depends on how garish it is. And so this film, it's like really in your face. And so at that point, it's like, okay, is it product placement or is it really plot? 
and it's much more plot than product. Yeah, it didn't feel garish to me. There had to be some internet dating site. And if they made up a fake one, we all would have been like, oh, fake internet dating site. Like, Well, it's whenever you hear a phone number and there's a 555 area. Right. Time. It's whatever. Fine. So, yeah. And Papa John's, it tied into the story because, you know, oh, did that make you sad because you just lost your father? And then you went for work for a place that was called Papa John's. And he said, God, I didn't even think about it. Right. I mean... Okay, I, I, the product placement did not bother me at all. And again, this is Jennifer's opinion. I'm kind of glad that Papa John's is not a happy memory. I am not a fan of the CEO, so that worked great for me. Well, and what I did think was interesting, too, you talk about product placement, um, Sean's camera is covered up. His the, the Nikon thing is covered up, which is very, again, true to real life because yes. photojournalists cover up the brand names of their cameras because they don't want them to get stolen and they don't want to get sucked into conversations about which brand is better than what. Yep. So, yes, there was, but there could have been so much more. Also, it's about Life magazine. So, like, it had that to have... That worked in great with It the was theme. perfect, yeah. right? So And that, he's also, he works on negatives. Yeah, he's the negative aspect, you know, coordinator or whatever. Yeah, so... For sure. And we all know about art with the negative space. It tells you more about the piece of art than the, the actual subject in the middle of the painting. Like that's what you learn when you're doing charcoal and whatever is about use of negative space. And so it basically it's all about the contrast. And that's freaking Walter Mitty right there. He's all about the contrast of what's left hidden and versus what's being shown. It's perfect. I have no problem with any of that stuff. And that's what I was saying. The writing is actually much tighter than I would expect from a film like this. There aren't throwaway lines. There aren't throwaway characters. You know, they all kind of come back to something. Right. And and really, I think that the movie's making a point that no life is small. Like, being a parent, being a friend, being a good person, those are worthwhile things, mm-hmm. having a job. You, you don't have to travel the world to be worthwhile, even though, you know, Walter does, but Cheryl doesn't, you know? And she's not seen as an unworthwhile character because she hasn't traveled. She is worthwhile. And, the, the and ver- she's charming. She's witty. She's, right. Yeah. What we get from her is that she's compassionate. She's got the three-legged dog. She feels bad for Mitty when he's getting picked on by the, the bullies guys. You know, she's the one who says, hey, you know, that's, he misunderstood the song. The song's about a cool guy. Like, even when nobody's watching, she feels bad for him. She's mm-hmm. aware of him. So she's all, she's compassionate and she's worthwhile. And I, I liked that. So yeah, I thought that the movie made some really good points. But I'm going to throw a, a question to you that you often ask me, and it is, do you believe that a hero is made or born that way? And how would you put Walter Mitty into the hero camp? I see him as somebody who was that and had to discover it for himself. Yeah. I because have... he was the skateboarder. He had these dreams, he had these goals, and he gave them up for a very specific, noble reason. He had to take care of his family. They didn't have any savings. Their father died. And so that, in its own way, is very heroic. Tragic, but heroic. Mm-hmm. And so this is something I actually really liked about the film, and, and you highlighted it when you went over his fantasies, is this idea of toxic masculinity. So the original Mitty, he is always dreaming about being competent and courageous and inscrutable, and he's a tough guy. And this Mitty is sensitive and artistic. So... This is one of the arguments I have with people about feminism is feminism isn't anti-men. It's actually very much promoting equality. And men have a very hard time expressing emotions and finding emotional outlets. And so they often rely on their wives or their girlfriends, which puts a lot of stress on their relationships. This is part of feminism of saying these traits, we shouldn't just say that they're feminine traits. They're not negative traits and they don't make you weak. So that is an important part of feminism is promoting men's emotional health. Yeah. And supporting it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's a lot of what Cheryl does. Yeah, I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) La la. I know I'm just, I'm giving away my ending, but yeah. Yeah, I like the film better than I expected. Yeah, and, and let's, I just wanted to point out the things that were not fantasies, the skateboard ability, the shark fight, the bar fight, helicopter jumping. Um, also Todd. And I will tell you, as I watched this movie, I was super ready for Todd to be a figment of Mitty's imagination until he actually showed up and had Todd. I could very easily have seen this movie doing that. We're like the person on the phone, because that's also motivating him, mm-hmm. right? Oh, you haven't done anything? Oh my God. You know, like kind of like talking about, but also like that magic ass cell phone reception. Like I kind of was like, okay, yeah, this cannot be real. Todd cannot be real. He's obviously talking to his subconscious, which is trying to pull him out of, you know, this place that he's in and get him back on track. I and actually kind of like that. It was this introduction of the mundane while he's on this fantastic adventure. No, it totally works. And it was great. And I, I love Patton Oswald. So yes, you know, hooray for actually getting to see him. But I was also ready for this to be <laughs> in his head. And I would have liked it just as well if it had just been in his brain and not and been a real person. Speaking of product placement, Patrick Oswald is very much Cinnabon. He's a, he's a warm, gooey little Cinnabon full of sugar and sweetness and happiness. Yes, unless you make him mad on Twitter, then watch out, world! <laughs> love you, Patton Oswald. Okay, so yeah, um... Todd, not a not a fantasy. Um, can I say something that I didn't like about the movie? Sure. Really, okay, and it's it's not a real failing of the movie, but I feel like it would be remiss to not point it out, and that is the privilege, Mitty's privilege. He's this white dude with enough money to do all of this. So he doesn't have any of his family ties because he does have his mom and his sisters he's taking care of, but he's he's kind of taking care of them and they're adults. It's not like he's got young children. It's not like he's got a partner, you know, that he's financially responsible to and for. And he doesn't have the safety concerns. He freaking goes to Afghanistan. He travels. He goes to the Himalayas. If this had been a woman's tr- going on this trip, there would have had to been some kind of discussion about the safety aspect of mm. traveling all around the world, like on your own and by yourself. Mitty does not have those concerns like at all. He makes friends with the warlords and he's playing, you know, soccer up there in the mountains. And I, I just... I want to acknowledge that this this white, privileged, money guy... And yeah, money is a concern, but he's not desperate. It's definitely... Well, at the end, he does look at his checkbook, and it's down to $72. Yeah, he, which, he, but well, he had to begin with, you know? And, you know, I think that's part of what privilege is, is it gives you a lot of stuff. What you do with it is up to you, you know? But he was definitely given a lot of... Uh, so, and uh, here, we... we and he's have... educated. Let's just not... I mean, he's yeah. educated. He had a job. Yes, he got fired, but he, you know what I mean? It's not like he was not going to be able to find another job. And there was a severance package involved. I mean, I just want to point out that, and to springboard off of that, that this is almost like the wet dream of these, of white middle aged men who are like, God, I guess I didn't do anything with my life. If only I could, da, 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 da. which it makes sense. And we should all have those dreams and go out and do the things. Although I do think that the movie's telling us that you don't necessarily have to travel the world to find meaning and stuff, which is a good message for those guys maybe going through middle age. And So this very much breaks with the short story, too. because mm-hmm. And this is why I wonder, is the movie, should it be called Walter Mitty? It doesn't have anything to do with the short story except for the title character, and that he has fantasies. That's pretty much the only thing that really ties them. And Walter Mitty in the story is, it's a question of, do you see that story as pessimistic or optimistic? You know, it does have these dark undertones, but it is a guy who's just this guy who's middle-aged, 
who doesn't have that much that's going to happen in his life at this point. You know, he's not going to be the ace pilot. None of this is going to happen. So it is sort of sad. And that ending with this firing squad. But at the same time, do you see these fantasies as him triumphing over the world because he won't let his interior self be defined by the outside world? Do you? This is why I don't have like a hardcore, this is how I feel about it. I I can see the pessimist side. I see the story midi as ultimately someone who's heroic because I do believe in, you know, I believe in the Willy Wonka fantasy. You know, we are the dreamers. I am on the dreamer side for the most part. So for me, I I feel like the world is the firing squad and he's going to be inscrutable. He's going to be his self in his mind, even if that is isolating. I don't think that this short story was optimistic or pessimistic. Again, I kind of get stuck on the fact that it was part of this whole subgenre of things that were poking fun at these people. And that really bothers me. I don't, I personally don't find it funny. I understand that it was a response to World War One, and, but to me, it just really smacks of toxic masculinity where we're going to, as a society, mock, disparage, and look down on the men who aren't the big soldiers who, who are struggling and sad and are trapped in, in, you know, and being harangued by the domineering wife. I, ha ha! No, I don't find it funny. And I, and I just, I find it incredibly sad. Yes. It's nice that he has this fantasy life that he gets to, you know, escape into. And that's great. Well, do you think we're supposed to mock Mitty along with everybody else in the story? Or are we kind of rooting for him? Well, I think I, as an audience member, definitely root for him. And I know that a lot of people did root for him, but it was written as a humor thing. Like that, that whole little man thing was part of this, this, funny thing and so like I feel like you have humor that punches up and humor that punches down and I'm not really sure where this goes but it doesn't definitely doesn't feel like it's punching up so I'm not a fan of punching down you know I I feel like Thurber has some feeling for this guy I I think he's he's having some playful fun with it but we are rooting for Mitty and Thurber is writing the story in a way that we do root for him because he is nagged he is henpecked and he's kind of stuck in this world. So what do you do? What do you do with that? Yeah. No, and I, I see that. I'm just saying that, like, societally at that time... It- so just a quick note about the author, uh, James Thurber, because he's an interesting guy. Uh, Thurber described his mother as a born comedian and one of the finest comic talents I think I have ever known. She was a practical joker and on one occasion to pretend to be crippled and attend a faith healer revival, only to jump up and proclaim herself healed. Uh, his father was uh, employed as a clerk and a minor politician and dreamed of being a lawyer or an actor, which is an interesting dichotomy. Uh, when Thurber was seven, his siblings and he were playing William Tell and he was shot in the eye with an arrow. And that left him almost blind. And after that, there's something called Charles Bonnet syndrome, where he would have very vivid imaginations. So as a... Just as a character, as a real-life person, he's sort of an interesting sort of character. His first marriage was an absolute failure. And this is sort of the the sad part of his life, that a lot of his comics and his female characters tend to be these domineering people. And it's unfortunately very similar to probably what his life was like. I don't want to impinge too much on that. It's also a product of the times. But I find him as a person sort of fascinating and as somebody who has these... Imaginings, I think he is, in his own way, very supportive of Mitty. So you see it kind of as an optimistic story. 
fantasy. I do. Okay. And there's also the question, is it a story about fantasies that has reality sort of interspersed because it, it bookends on fantasies? Or is this the story of Walter Mitty, who's just this dreamer? As And again, I think that they, they took the idea of that and then they decided to do something different with the movie. So to go back to your thing about whether or not this movie should even be called Walter Mitty, you know... Um, Maybe, maybe not, but it definitely... It shares some some elements. It's just, it's so incredibly different. Yes, in all the best ways. Um, something else that happens in the movie that I think is worth mentioning is that uh, Sean, our photographer, says, beautiful things don't ask for attention. And I feel, okay, first of all, let me say that again. The photographer, Sean, says, beautiful things don't ask for attention. And I really feel like he's missing the second part of that quote, which is, beautiful things don't ask for attention... They simply receive it. But he doesn't say the second part. So it's it's left as if it's this profound thing, like beautiful things. Don't ask for attention. You don't but that's not the re- that's not the whole thing. And you literally are a photographer taking pictures of beautiful things. And I get that there's like this message about like live in the moment and you know, it was before this, but your life doesn't have to be an Instagram life. Like it's okay to just like live in the moment and make those memories. But I will say two things about that. One is that this is really close to the trope of the artist characters looking down on the people who actually enjoy their art because the artists themselves have like transcended normalcy and they're better than all of that. And a little bit of ableism because some people don't make memories the same way that other people do. And if you don't take pictures, you don't have those memories. So like living in the moment and and then having that little special memory to carry on with you forever does not work for a pretty decent sized segment of the population nowadays. And maybe that's a medical thing we can or cannot get into, but some people need the pictures and they don't, that's how they create and keep their memories. I would have never thought of. Yeah, especially people who have ADD, um, people who have sensory issues, people who have <clears throat> low vision might need memories to be captured in order to make them. My pe- mother's having memory issues. And so that's one of those things. Let's take a picture so you can look back. We'll put the details Also, on people yeah. who've gone through trauma as children don't make memories the same way that other people do. And so it's it's a thing. So I I kind of bump on it a little bit but for both of those things. The artist, like the literal artist sitting there with his camera going, well, you don't need to take pictures of things. Okay. But that's like literally how you're paying for your globe trotting lifestyle is by selling the pictures you take of things. So mm, I don't the, know. The only part that really got me about that is I wonder if any photographers were watching this film, if they just had a brain aneurysm when he didn't take the picture. Because <laughs> they sit there for, you know, maybe three weeks waiting for the damn thing to show up to take right. the picture of the thing. Oh, no, but he's transcended. Now he has the memory of it. So that, that's more important. And I just think, what about all the people who don't get to go up there and, and will never see a snow leopard? Like, I'm really glad that people take pictures of things, you know? This to me, strikes as looking down on the next generation. And I see that with people who are like, oh, you know, the whatever generation it is. There's always, the young generation doesn't get it. They just want to eat avocado toast. And they, they, it doesn't take that long to take a picture. You know, if you take a picture of your food, it's not like you're not going to enjoy the food. It takes a second. You're not missing out on your life when you take a picture of a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're just holding the picture, if you're just holding the camera and you're not experiencing the world, that's the criticism. But it's a very unfair criticism. Right. Yeah, no, I I think so. And 
we all know people who live their lives on Instagram and that's not maybe their true life, but they, they put it through filters, so to speak, the filtered life. And that's, but I think that's a different issue. And well, it, there's like the Paul Logan thing where he becomes a persona instead of being himself. So he maybe have started off his channel as being Paul Logan. And then he has to be the character. It's, it's the flanderization of Paul Logan. And that's where you sort of get in trouble when you make yourself part of the art. Mm-hmm. But I, but again, I don't even think that this movie was at, you know, trying to make any of those points. No, I feel like not. this guy this was just basically a... like saying, "Oh, live in the moment," without kind of unpacking all the ways that like living in the moment is is a little uh, doesn't doesn't age well. I'll <laughs> <laughs> just say. Well, it's also it's a it's a great thematic thing of you have a photographer and they're all they're supposed to be capturing these moments in time. Which is its own sort of interesting philosophical thing, if you want to get into it, of what does it mean to capture a moment in time, to have it frozen there. Right. Well, and then we also, we've talked before about how, like, things change under observation, Mm. right? And, I mean, not to get too into this, but Sean's a little bit of a weirdo um, psycho stalker, because... Like his pictures, okay, he's got the, the thumb, the picture of the thumb from the bar, from the pilot, fine. The pictures of the water, sure. Then he's got the, the picture of part of this piano because he was in Mitty's house. Now, he and Walter Mitty had never actually had a conversation. They didn't have like a relationship, but he literally went to Walter's mom's house to talk to her about Walter. And then the picture that he once used on the, on the cover of Time is a picture taken a, a candid picture taken of Walter as Walter's sitting outside like on his lunch break looking at negatives and you're like so he's like hiding behind a bush like taking a picture of Walter Mitty and then being like this is life um because this is life that I stalkery found and t- I just I don't know there's some little and again I'm gonna pull gender into it but if I was a woman and somebody was like this is the quintessential picture I took it of you from behind a plant I would be like fuck <laughs> you like and you visited my mom? Like, what the hell? But like, oh no, it's okay because of the bromance issue or just because like, it's just, he's a, an artist and that's okay. And It is a great last oh. picture. It's the story around the last picture that you go, oh, oh okay. Uh, but it is a great last picture. Well, and then Minnie didn't even look at it. It's a picture of him. He didn't even look at it. So he's surprised when it's, but okay, just, just so y'all know, if they put your picture on a cover of a magazine, you have to like sign paperwork, right? Even in 2013, like this, yeah. Okay. Um, he would have had to give permission for his picture to be there. So well, he there sh- are tons of magical moments okay. in this. Fine. I mean, also like fighting a shark. Can and- I just say, I really wish we hadn't seen the last picture. Negative 25. I would have been fine without seeing it because I think that the quintessential life moment is such a big thing to put on any one image. Like there's no image that's really, and it, it's fine. It, it works and it tells this cute little story and stuff. And it wraps up very nicely because he literally was the thing he went to search for. I get it. Bonk, bonk on the head. But there is a part of me that would have been like, it would have been cool if like the last thing had been, they were like, oh, we should see what the picture is. And they walk over and like the camera's behind the magazine and they just lean in and, and you see like kind of like the top of the cover, you know, the top of the magazine from the point of view of behind it. And the two of them looking at it and they both go, wow, credits, roll credits. Like I would have liked that. We would have not had the hand-holding romantic thing. We would have been like, what was it? We don't know because really the quintessential life moment is going to be different for all of us. But the thing is, if this had become a popular film, this would be one of those things of, 
What do you do with the three shells? What was on the package with the wings? What was in the briefcase? It's one of those movie things that gets debated endlessly. Well, what was the last shot? So I'm happy seeing the last shot. I thought that was cool because it was a lot about Sean's relationship with Mitty. Relationship. It was a bromance with a romantic misunderstanding. Tell me that was not... Star-crossed lovers who never talk and tell the top of a mountaintop? Yeah. No, I get it. And you're right. And I enjoyed it too. And I... It's fine. But there was a little part of me that would have been super happy if Todd had not been real and if we had not seen the shot. I would have been like, damn, my mind would have been... I'm very happy with this movie. I really enjoyed this movie. I liked a lot of it. But it didn't blow my mind. And those two things would have been kind of like, damn. It would have just stayed with me, I think, a little bit. But that is fine. Whatever. They made artistic choices. <laughs> they made artistic choices that an actual character is a character. Yeah. No, I'm fine with that. But, like, he's got cell phone in... Well, yeah. A working cell phone on an Afghanistan mountain in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Sure. Oh, here's a fun thing. So, Ted who I can't not see as Ben Wyatt and or as the demon from The Good Place. And he's just so good. That Adam Scott, who's so great. Anyways, he's got this very manly beard, but it's it's very uh, professional Fake. manly beard. No, no, but it's... It's, it's manicured? It's manicured. Yes, definitely. There's a lot of manscaping happening on Ted's face. So that's Ted. And Walter Mitty, obviously, is all clean shaven. And then at the end, Walter has grown his own man facial hair, to, you know, because he's got his testosterone all ramped and ready to go. Scruffy. Oh, yeah. Because he's that's a real man. <laughs> <laughs> scruffiness, as opposed to the clean, polished... Fake. Um, well, speaking of fake, like when he's playing soccer, he looked very yellow. I was like, did they paint their faces? It was almost that level of yellow where it looked like they put paint on. When he's tan, he's the orange tan. Yeah. It says like, okay, movie, you have a better budget than this. So there were some weird spray tan moments. Yeah. 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 I'd, I'd give you that. Okay. Let's see here if I had anything else. Oh, just so that we all have it recorded for history, life's motto, to see things thousands of miles away, things hidden behind walls and within rooms, things dangerous to come to, to draw closer, to see and be amazed. That was life's motto. Motto. And I thought that was, that was great. So in the credits of the film, they do think, there's a line where they think all the people that were in working in the film so they have the credits but they also have like a little line about that so okay so here's our trivia life magazine american magazine published weekly until 1972 as an intermittent special um until 1978 and as a monthly from 1978 to 2000 during its golden age from 1936 to 1972 life was wide-ranging weekly general interest magazine known for the quality of its photography possibly the best-known photograph published in the magazine was the photograph of a nurse and a sailor's arms taken on August 14th, 1945, as they celebrated victory over Japan Day in New York City. There's controversy about that picture. I will link to it because it's not relevant to this discussion, but it is well worth noting. The cover of the final issue of Life's Magazine's original weekly run featured the titles This Year in Pictures, 1972, and Special Double Issue. The words appeared in white against a black background containing a random listing of words in red, including the Olympics, Godfather, Peace, and Assorted Typefaces. But the final issue of the magazine was dated uh, December 29, 1972, and contained articles about Nixon's visit to China, the war in Vietnam, and dissident Russian author Alexander Solston, I can't, I'm sorry, Solston Hymanson, along with a farewell message to readers. 
While the positioning of these words looks random, the word chosen for the lower right side corner was simply and poignantly goodbye. Let's see here. Time Inc. resurrected the magazine as a monthly publication between 1978 and May 2000 and featured premature baby Jason Michael Waldman Jr. under the title Born Too Soon on the final cover. But the last printed issue was The Supplement, published in April 20th, 2007. The cover story, 21 Places You've Got to See to Believe America's Hidden Treasures, featured a photo of John F. Kennedy statue in President's Park in South Dakota. So, just in case you, like me, were like, what was life's final picture? Um, there were technically three different final covers, and now you know. You know, it's do you how whole how high do you hold a film to accuracy? I pointed out a couple things. Iceland doesn't have strip clubs. They don't have Papa John's, at least at the time of this film. Is it important to the plot that there are Chileans needing a strip club, and so he had to race for the bike, or was that oh. just? Yeah. I mean, I kind of wish they could have said something else, but yeah, sure. There was, there was like, you know, and then he's like, you're gold, pony boy, which is, I guess, a reference to something that was a little deep dive. I looked it up. I don't care now. Um, yeah, it's it's from a book. Yeah. So, but, I you know, whether or not things are incredibly perfectly accurate is not really neither here nor there. The movie was freaking magic. And that's it. What that's what it was. Yeah. So this it got seventy uh, seventy plus rating on Rotten Tomatoes from viewers. It got fifty one from critics. And so I'm wondering if it's one of those films that critics see so many films they get very jaded. Uh, even the review on Ebert's website wrote that he might be prejudiced on this one because of Ben Stiller's other efforts, and so he just really did not like Ben Stiller. I've had it a couple times when I've explained to friends, okay, this particular actor's in this film, but it's not that actor's film. Yeah, and I agree with that. Like, I think I probably didn't necessarily want to watch this movie at first because it's a Ben Stiller movie, and I'm not... He also directed it. Yes, he did. And I'm not a super Ben Stiller fan. I know some people are, and that's fine. But yeah, it's kind of like um, Will Ferrell. I don't particularly like Will Ferrell, except in Stranger Than Fiction. Stranger Than Fiction was an amazing movie. It was a great film. And, and it was I like, always have to explain this. It's not a Will Ferrell film. Right. And it was like this one. It was kind of quieter and it, you know, a little slower moving. And I think people weren't expecting that. And I think that colors the reviews for sure. Yeah. So it's not Gorby Zoolander. No. And it didn't need to be. I, I think it, it it's frustrating when people put actors into boxes and again like i fall subject to this too because i was like oh ben stiller but then i'm so glad i watched this movie yeah it was so much better than i expected so i'm kind of at the end of my stuff do you have anything else you want to say before we do our final thoughts uh let's see i have a tiny tiny bit of trivia so in the short story walter Mitty is making up all these little words for this and that but they're not made up words and so the millionaire banker has this disease i think they call it chorioposis that's actually a plant it looks a lot like a daisy so that's just a little bit of trivia about the short story that was kind of cute another little piece of trivia in the movie the last life cover to be packed after walter gets fired featured george harrison of the beatles in the very next scene a chuck mural can be seen that says here comes the sun which was written by harrison like they just did all these cute little easter eggy things yeah. and yeah. and this is a movie full of easter eggs mm-hmm. that was just one of my um, favorites Mitty does appear in the dictionary a fictional character given to grand and elaborate fantasies a daydreamer huh. so Mitty-esque. and i recommend seeing the earlier danny k version it's really cute it's a little bit hard to find I wish older films had their own database. Um, 
I, I found this on an untrustworthy website I'm not going to promote because I didn't even look at the website. I was just like, oh, there's the movie online. Uh, you could get it at the library. Depending on your library. It's available to be purchased off YouTube, I think. Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon if you want to pay $10 for the DVD and have it arrive at your house. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. I really like Danny Kaye. He's, he was a very fun comedic actor of his day. So there is the older film that had a lot of these sort of updates. So this version of Walter Mitty is almost like a reimagining of the Danny Kaye film more than it is the short story. The author, James Thurber. Thurber did not like the Danny Kaye movie. Uh, or the script that he read of it, which I thought was interesting. Uh, yeah, so supposedly they talked to him quite a bit and never took any of his notes to change it. The director went with his own thing. Thurber wrote a letter saying he really didn't like it, although the director said, no, I got a letter that he did. Yeah. So, yeah, right. So, there you go. Okay, so my final thoughts are as follows. It is a fine short story. It gives you enough to be interested. It doesn't bury you with info. You can draw your own conclusions. I think it does well in a short story. Uh, I personally like short stories that have an epiphany or some kind of something that sticks with you for a long time. This did not really have the epiphany, but you could definitely see the Walter Mitty sticks with you. Again, I'd forgotten his name, but I had read the story. And as soon as I started to read it, I remembered it. That idea of somebody who's living out a fantasy life when they're trapped in a not great realistic life is prescient always, I think. So I would say, eh, on the short story. It's fine. It's good. It will literally take you very, very little time to actually read it. And it's if, free on the New Yorker website. It is on the New Yorker website. So there you go. As for the film, it is not a perfect movie, but I feel like it does what it sets out to do, and it does it well. It is beautiful. The music, the camera work, everything is great. The acting is good. It leaves a nice taste in your brain when you're finished because it has a happy ending. It is definitely not a typical Ben Stiller movie, and I liked it, and I will probably want to own it now that I spent the money to rent it, and I'm like, yeah, I actually think that I could own this movie, and... uh mm. My six and a half year old caught a little bit of it and was intrigued. Although I will say she caught the part where he was riding his bike in Iceland or Greenland. I can't remember. Iceland. Iceland. And he's riding and he crashes. And um, (laughs) then he gets up and he's like, oh, the bike's busted. So he drops it on the side of the road and he just takes off. And my six year old goes, he littered. That's not okay. (laughs) (laughs) And Iceland is gorgeous. I would kind of be upset with that, too. Yeah. Ella's right on. Yeah. I'd say the same thing. The short story is free. It's a very short, cute little story. It'll take you a couple minutes to read. I read it in elementary school, and I remembered it just from that because I understood that sort of thing. So it's, it's sometimes called a children's story written for adults. The movie is better than I expected. It is worthwhile. You may not want to own it, but I don't blame you if you do. There you go. All right. Today's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you by our patrons. So thank you very much, patrons. Woo! Yay, patrons. And if you would like to be a patron and get your own little woo shout out, you can do that at patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. Check out our Facebook page and our Twitter. We will be posting a poll. We will be posting this episode. We will be posting other things. And we have some potentially really exciting something that's going to happen on June 1st. So those of you who are not our patrons will get this episode on May 31st hopefully, but you're probably listening to it a little bit after that, probably mid-June. So go back and check it out. There will be a fun, exciting announcement, hopefully. Fingers crossed. And if there's not going to be, maybe I'll edit this part out and no one will have to know. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it for now. 
and thank you. <laughs>